All right, let's open up in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. We are back in the book of Ephesians and will be so for some time. I'm going to kind of lay out the plan for the fall and our time in the book of Ephesians for the next few months, but uh, first I just want to read the text and pray and then we'll, we'll kind of get into some stuff. We're talking about spirit-filled worship this morning. Our text is Ephesians 5, verses 19 through 21. We'll primarily deal with 21 next week, but we'll include it in the reading this morning. And we're going to start reading in verse 18. Ephesians 5, 18. I am reading and teaching from the New American Standard. Paul writes and says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that's dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful this morning that we can gather and open up your word Thank you for giving us your word. Thank you that it's not the word of man, it's the word of God. Thank you that it is inerrant, trustworthy, living and active. Thank you that as we read your holy word, it reads our lives. Thank you that as we study your word, the Holy Spirit studies our hearts and ministers to us the love of the Father. Thank you, Father, that you love each one that is here so desperately and wonderfully. And you know our life spaces and places. You know our hearts, you know our hurts, you know our dreams and our fears. You know what's distracting us and distressing us. And you love us so much. You've brought us into this place this morning to realign us with your heart. And Holy Spirit, that you would exalt Christ in our lives. That we and everything else would become less important and that Jesus, you would be primary, preeminent, glorified in our hearts and our minds and in our lives. Lord, we confess that this is hard for us because we are worried and bothered about so many things and so absorbed with ourselves. And so we ask for your help, Holy Spirit. Come and exalt Jesus in our midst. Cause all of our hearts and our eyes and our minds and our affections to be set on him. We ask together that you would please anoint me by grace to preach for the glory of Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, it's exciting to be back in the book of Ephesians. Um, Believe it or not, we started studying the book of Ephesians two years ago this week, two full years ago, and we're not yet done. There's been some detours, you know what I mean? We did some other stuff, and of course, uh, verse 18 prompted the summer of the Spirit, which we just finished, so there's been some detours, but it's been a, a long, careful study of the book of Ephesians. And what we're gonna do now for the fall is we're gonna cover chapter 5, verse 19, through chapter 6, verse 9. And basically what we're looking at there are the results of the Spirit-filled life. This morning we'll talk about the life of worship, which is one of the results of being filled with the Spirit. Next week we'll talk about being submitted or subject to one another. Okay, mutual deference toward one another as a body of Christ, which is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. 
And then Paul would begin to instruct us in how that plays out in the different spaces of our life. So he'll talk about marriage relationships, family relationships, parenting. He'll talk about vocation, so on and so forth. So we're going to take the fall to cover all of those things. We'll get up to chapter 6, verse 9. That'll take us to the beginning of December. Then we'll spend all December talking about Christmas, the birth of our Savior. And then in the new year, we will start with verse 10, the section on warfare and deal with that. So that's kind of the plan. And then we've got these seminars coming up that we mentioned. They're going to be covering some of these broad topics, uh, marriage and relationships, singleness, dating, family, parenting, vocation. I want you guys to be a part of those. Now, since it's been so long since we started in the book of Ephesians, I want to provide a little bit of a refresher for where we've been and what's going on in the book of Ephesians. The Apostle Paul wrote this book to the church in Ephesus primarily for this reason, primarily for the reason of identity formation, okay? And the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul wanted God's people to really get, to really comprehend, to really lay hold of who they are in Christ, who they are, who we are in light of God's love for us. Identity formation is a primary goal of this whole book. Second part or the second main theme of the book is that of power, okay? Because Paul presents to us our identity in Christ and then he begins to urge us to live in a certain way in light of who we are in Christ, in light of God's love, okay? So how then we ought to live. And what we're told in the book of Ephesians is that we are given power from on high to live in light of our new identity. So the main themes of the book of Ephesians Our identity in Christ in light of God's love and power to live in a way that is consonant, consistent with that. Identity and power is the book of Ephesians. Now, let me take us back to the very beginning and review for us some of the identity part as it pertains to God's God's love. I'm just going to give you a quick summary of chapter 1. In chapter 1, we are told that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms as Christians because we are united with Christ through faith and repentance. And that before the foundations of the world, before he made anything and everything, God loved us already and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. And that through Christ, God has adopted us and brought us into his very own family. And we're told in chapter 1 that this gave God great pleasure. God wanted to do that. He wanted to save us and adopt us and bring us into his own family. And in doing so, we discover in chapter 1 that God has poured out his glorious grace upon us. And that we now belong to his dear son, Christ Jesus. We have belonging. We belong to Jesus. And that the father is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom from sin, death, and the devil with the blood of his son and forgave all of our sins when we put our faith in him and repent of them. And the Father has showered his kindness on us and has now identified us, here's identity, identified us to be his very own. And he has sealed this by giving us the person of the Holy Spirit to reside in us. And in uniting us with Christ, the Father tells us that we now have a great inheritance from him as those who belong to him. 
And the Holy Spirit who is in us is God's guarantee that he will give us the internal inheritance he's promised us. And he did all of this so that we would praise and glorify him. That is chapter one. Now, chapter two (laughs) is best summarized just by reading a few of the verses. Chapter two, verses four through 10. I'll read from the New Living Translation for this. It says, God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead, spiritual death, because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So that God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. We are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Chapter one and chapter two, identity. You are are the beloved of the Father, united with Christ Jesus, made brand new through salvation. You are the masterpieces of God the Father. And then Paul begins to turn to the power aspect in chapter three, best summarized again by the reading of a few verses, verses 14 through 19, New Living Translation. Paul says, when I think of all this, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. I pray, this is a prayer for us, that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. That's what we spent the summer studying. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust him. Your roots will go down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how high, how long, and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it's too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Then, having given us this explanation of what God has done for us in Christ and our identity in him, remember the book is all about identity and power, Then in chapter four, Paul the apostle turns and urges us to live in response to the glorious things that God has done for us in Christ. He begins to say, now don't let this be lost on you. You're brand new. You have a brand new identity. You have been radically saved. Don't let that be lost on you. There is a way to live in light of what God has done for you in Christ. And so he starts chapter four now, leaving the indicatives, the statements of fact of who we are in Christ, moving to the imperatives, the commands of how we ought to live in light of what God has done for us in the love of Christ. And he begins by saying this, walk therefore, or live, walk therefore in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Live in a certain way in light of what God has done for you. 
live in a certain way in light of your new identity. And then the rest of the book is unpacking how we ought to live, what it means to walk in a manner worthy, being faithful to our new identity. And the passage that we'll be studying until December, chapter 5, verse 19, through chapter 6, verse 9, is a careful development of what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And this section starts in verse 15 of chapter 5 with a warning and a command. Paul there says, be careful how you walk. Walk being a metaphor for living life. Paul says, be careful how you walk. And then the command is explained by three not but contrasts where he says, not this, but this. To live the Christian life faithfully is not this, but it is this. Here's what he says in verse 15. Don't live as unwise, not as unwise, but as wise. Then in verse 17, not being foolish, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And then in verse 18, not drunk, but filled with the Spirit. And that's what launches into that whole summer of the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit. What does that mean? And what else can we learn about the power and the person of the Holy Spirit? And what Paul's doing in our text today then, specifically verses 19 and 20, a little bit of 21, is giving us the results, some of the results of the Spirit-filled life. Okay, again, we read it. Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. The results of the Spirit-filled life, being continually filled with the Holy Spirit, what fruitful and faithful Christianity ought to look like. Now, in verses 18 through 21, it's one sentence in the Greek. The New American Standard pulls that off, but it's quite clumsy with all the punctuation and whatnot. But in the sentence, in the Greek, excuse me, it's one sentence with five participles explaining what it means, what the results are of being filled. And and they're interesting because they're not what we normally think, right? The first one is speaking, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. The second participle is singing. Third is making melody in our hearts. The fourth is giving thanks. And the fifth is being subject to or submitting to others within the body of Christ. And that'll be the topic of our study next week. Succinctly, we might say this in light of this text. Continually being filled with the Spirit, as we're told to do as Christians, continually being filled with the Spirit should result in our being thrilled in the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit should result in our being thrilled in the Spirit. God's Spirit will enable God's people to become, listen, praising, thankful, humble men and women. That's what the Spirit is wanting to work in us. That's the result of continually being filled with the Spirit. We are people who praise. We are people of gratitude. We are people of submission one to another. Humility. Spirit-filled Christians rejoice and give thanks and submit. Why? Only because of what God has done for us in Christ. 
These imperatives, these commands come after the indicatives, the statements of fact, the wonderful good news of what God has done for us in Christ because of his love, that we now belong to him, that we are the beloved of God, that we have been adopted, accepted, that we are adored, that we have an inheritance and have been given the Holy Spirit, that we were loved before the foundation of the world, that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son. In light of those glorious things, don't let them be lost on you. In light of those things, be people who praise God, give thanks to God, and submit to one another. That is the reasoning. Now, what must be said in light of this passage is this reminder. The Holy Spirit is always working in your life, Christian, to make the presence of God real to you. Let me say that again. The Holy Spirit is always working in your life, Christian brother and sister, to make the presence of God real to you. Remember what Paul prayed earlier. We read it that he prayed that we may experience the love of God, even though we can't fully comprehend it. He wants us to experience it. Remember the work of the Holy Spirit in Romans 5, 5 is to pour the love of the Father abroad in our hearts. And to manifest the presence of Christ in the world and in the church, we read from the Gospel of John, the Holy Spirit is always working to make God's love and presence real to us. And what we talked about this summer is that the Holy Spirit doesn't just work independent of us. The Holy Spirit works with us, in us, and through us. Therefore, we must work with the Holy Spirit. And in the Holy Spirit's work of wanting to make the presence of God real to us, we partner with him in this by making ourselves present to God. God is, and God is wanting to be present to you. We partner with that work of the Holy Spirit by making ourselves present to God. And Paul is giving us clues in this text as to how we do it. We do it by being aware of and present to his worth, responding in praise, singing, psalms, hymns, making melody in our hearts. We make ourselves present to God by being aware of and speaking of his worth. We also make ourselves present to God by being aware of and present to his great mercy and kindness. This would manifest itself in gratitude. We make ourselves present to God by thanking God continually for his work in our lives. Praise and thanks make us present to God. What the apostle is trying to do in our text is open our eyes. Okay, what I'm trying to do this morning is is open our eyes to what the Holy Spirit is wanting to do in us continually. And that is to get into the joy of belonging to Jesus and to give expression to this through singing appropriate songs is what the text is saying. Now, that may seem sort of anticlimactic, singing songs. Singing songs is so common in our culture. And yet to many of us, it's strange. You know, there's just not a lot of places in culture where you gather with other people and you all sing together right? That can be strange and (laughs) awkward at times. But what the Bible tells us is that it's actually incredibly important to God in the economy of God and for God's people. Whenever we look at a survey of scripture, singing is always present, 
all the way back to Exodus chapter 15, where we have the song of Moses, the first song recorded in scripture. We see way back at the very beginning that singing is present. Even before the creation of the world, we know that singing was present around God in worship to him. Anytime in scripture we're given a glimpse of heaven, we know that singing is present around the throne of God. The angels and the saints adore him. When when we're given sort of oral cues about heaven, we're told that it's loud, that that it's like a, a multitude of many waters, the praise resounding in heaven. When the heavens were opened up to Isaiah, the sound of the cherubim and the seraphim singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty was so radical that it shook the pillars and the foundations of the temple that he was in. We're even told in Zephaniah chapter three, verse 17, that God himself sings and he sings over you in his love. You can't read the Bible and say that singing isn't important to God. God created singing. God created music and melody and hymn and song and all these things. And somehow, no matter how we feel about them at this moment, somehow they're incredibly important to God, the economy of God, and God's people. Now what we see in Scripture is that it's always more than one person singing. Other than when God sings over us, it's always a corporate thing. It's God's people singing together. And for us right now, In this age, that includes us singing together on Sunday mornings as the church, the church universal, the church around the world. And Paul is saying that a a, a result of people being continually filled with the Holy Spirit is that we're going to do just that. Again, verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. Now, for some of us, corporate worship, Sunday morning, singing songs together and other times that that takes place is very easy. For some of us, it's just kind of part of the fiber of our being. We come in, the music starts to play and we're just like, oh, yes. <laughs> we're just in there. We're just doing it. For others of us, it, it can be quite a challenge. Sometimes corporate worship can be really hard. Here's why it can be hard for most of us. True worship involves the heart and the mind. And if we were to be honest about our hearts and our minds, they are worried, bothered, distracted, evil, and self-absorbed. But true worship requires that the heart and the mind be brought into submission and full attention to the glory and praise of God at a predetermined time and place. And this can just be really challenging. All sorts of distractions, all sorts of questions, all sorts of anxieties and fears, things we're excited about. All this stuff is rushing through our minds. And you know how hard it can be to get to church in the morning if you've got kids or you're just grumpy or life or you're hungover or whatever it is. All, right? Some, some a little bit. All these things are going through our minds. And, and what worship is, we come here and we're just snap this worried, distracted, self-absorbed, evil mind and heart to attention to the glory of Christ. And if we're to be honest, that's just not an easy thing to do all the time. It just, it just isn't. 
But the only time that worship happens, the only time that worship happens is when we intentionally cherish God and value him above all else. Intentionally. That's the only time worship is happening. It's never happening when we're passive. It's it's never happening when we're not fully engaged. It's not worship. Could be spectator thing. It could be just sitting here thing. But it's not worship. This is... Not always easy because of our worried hearts and minds, our distractions, our flesh. And it's also not always easy because of our enemy, Satan. You must know that Satan hates when you fix all of your attention, your heart and your mind on the person of Jesus Christ and what God has done for you and him and how much he loves you. You must know that nothing is more torturous to the enemy of our souls than when men and women lift their hearts, minds, and voices to praise the one who has saved them by his precious precious blood. You You must know that it's like fingernails on a chalkboard to the enemy. And so don't be naive. The enemy will always do everything he can to keep the church quiet. The word of God commands us who we're to be speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, making melody in our heart to the Lord. And so because that's a command of God to the glory of Jesus Christ, the devil will always do everything he can to get us quiet. So don't be naive, church. It's not the flesh only that we battle when we come into the house of worship. It is the enemy as well. Now we begin to see a little bit of why this is important. Let me tell you another reason why this is important. Corporate worship, singing songs together. When the church gathers and does this, exalts Jesus and gives thanks to the Father, we are, among other things, recalibrating, catch that word, we are recalibrating our hearts and our minds. And so our lives to the person of Jesus. That's why this is important. When we do this, singing, making melody in our hearts together. We are recalibrating our hearts and minds and so our lives and even our behavior to the person and the identity of Christ. Now, to calibrate something is to bring it into conformity with a set standard, right? Like a compass has a set standard. And if the compass isn't calibrated, brother, you are in trouble. You understand that? to bring something into a set standard, the calibration of our hearts and minds. And the set standard for the church is the love of God, our identity in the person of Christ, and God's glory in all the nations. That is the set standard to which our hearts and minds need to be recalibrated. When I was growing up, my dad used to have and still has a boat, and I would go surfing and fishing at the islands a lot out here and and still do on occasion. And uh, back in the days when we were ghetto, we didn't have GPS or a radar or anything. We, we just had a compass. And, you know, usually we'd be going in the summertime because other times I'd be in school. So summertime, and you know about the fog that we get here on the coastlands in the summer. And so we'd be setting out from the harbor, either in Santa Barbara or Ventura, and it would be socked in fog. You couldn't see the islands. You couldn't see anything but fog. So the only hope you have of making it out there is that little compass. You had better pray to sweet Jesus that that compass is calibrated. If that compass is not calibrated, you are in serious trouble. Now, from time to time, the compass needs to be recalibrated. 
Just being exposed to the environment and external influences and different magnetic pulls would cause it to get out of whack. And when it was out of whack, your whole gig was out of whack. The compass would have to be recalibrated. I can remember thinking every time as we're heading out the harbor, I think the com- I hope the compass is right, Dad. <laughs> Such is the case with our hearts and our minds. They get exposed to external influences and other magnetic poles and environments that cause them to be out of whack. And our hearts and our minds must be regularly recalibrated to the love of God, our identity in Christ, and God's glory. And so it's important that the body of Christ come together and purposefully think about, very purposefully now, do that. And realize that that, that what scripture teaches us is when we do this together, we are being recalibrated and tuned. Now, our text says that the content of this is psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs there in verse 19. Really, Paul is just using them synonymously. There's lots of different forms of worship and musical worship. He used the term psalms because it would have appealed to his Jewish audience there in Ephesus. Hymns because it would have appealed to the Greek audience there in Ephesus. Songs everybody gets. It's just another way of saying that there are lots of ways to lift our voices in praise to God. But I want you to notice what applies to all of them and must always be true. He says there in verse 19, spiritual songs. Now that is a qualifier for all three of those. Psalms, hymns, and songs are all to be spiritual. What does that mean? That means that they have something to do with the work of the Holy Spirit. It means that they are real and deep and important. They have to do with God and they are of great value and effect. They're not some optional buffer time in the church. They're not some moment of entertainment. They're not your opportunity to go to the restroom. But if you must do. (laughs) But not when I'm preaching. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) Better to go there than go here. (laughs) When it says they are spiritual, it means that they are a work of the Holy Spirit in us bringing forth the proper response to what God has done for us. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? It says that we should be speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. There is a horizontal dimension of worship. We got to get that. There is a horizontal dimension of worship. Now, when he says speaking, it's just another way to speak a vocal activity of singing. He's not saying that our church life ought to be like a musical, He's not saying that when we come to church, we should sing everything that we say to one another. That's not what he's saying. The point is that when we gather and sing in some way that we should be aware of, we know that all of our praise is directed to God, but in some way that we should be aware of, we are singing to one another as well. When we hear one another singing, the truth about God, exalting Christ, about the glorious good news of what he has done for us, then all of our hearts are encouraged and strengthened and uplifted when we hear one another singing. 
In that sense, Paul wants us to be aware that in the church, we do sing to one another in a way that edifies all of us. There is a horizontal dimension. Yes, we are aware that all praise is actually directed to the person of Jesus Christ. But there is a sense in which we are singing to one another. It could be translated equally from the Greek, singing among each other. And this has a positive effect on us when we do it together. Think of a sporting event. When I think of a sporting event when people begin to sing for their team, it's really directed at the team, right? They're, they're hurraying and hurraying the team. But when you start to sing whatever it is, everybody else gets riled up, right? It has an effect on you. And somebody could start one song. I'm thinking of, no, never mind. Somebody could start one song and people start joining in and it's directed toward the sporting event, but you're singing to each other in a way that sweeps everyone up into what's going on. When we come to church, we ought to be swept up into the presence and the glory of Jesus Christ. And corporate singing helps us to do that as ordained by God and empowered by the person of the Holy Spirit. And in that, there's a great degree of edification. The other thing then that happens when we all choose to sing together is that we are tuned together. Let, let, me, let me illustrate this. Think about an orchestra. You can think about when an orchestra begins to assemble. They have a piece that they're going to play and there is a conductor who is there. When they all come together, the orchestra with their, uh, with their different instruments, they're all out of tune because they've been at home, they've been on the road, they've been on trains and planes and automobiles, they've been through different weather and different circumstances, different stresses pulling on them. So when all those instruments come together, they're all out of tune. But when the conductor says so, a musician plays the A note on the oboe. And everybody begins to tune their instrument to that note. And at first it's cacophonous, right? It's, it's discord. It, it's a, it's a, unless you appreciate it for some weird reason, it's a, it's a horrible sound when all these instruments fresh from home and out of tune begin to try to tune up. And at first it's like, oh, that's horrible. But then as they all come into tune under the direction of the, what's he called? Conductor. <laughs> And that A note played by the oboe, all of a sudden there comes this harmony when they're finally all in tune. I am telling you that the Holy Spirit is the conductor who sounds the note of the glory of Jesus Christ. And we are to bring our lives into tune with that. They've gotten out of tune at home. They've gotten out of tune on the road. They've been pulled on by the environment and forces and stressed in different ways. And the Holy Spirit is saying, come and tune yourself to the glorious note of the exalted, risen, ruling, and reigning Jesus. And that is what we do in corporate worship. You see how, you see how this is important stuff? This is the result of the spirit-filled life. And nothing pisses off Satan more than when we tune ourselves to the note of the exalted Christ. He goes on to say in verse 19, we are to be singing and making melody with our hearts to the Lord. Paul is essentially repeating what he has already said, but there's an important qualification, okay? When he says making melody with our hearts, 
there's an important qualification for the whole thing. This is how we're to do corporate worship. Paul is saying, if you're going to worship, your heart must be engaged. What you do in singing must be a heartfelt expression in response to what God has done for you in the love of Christ. But there should be profound heart involvement. Now, when we talk about the heart in our culture, we're tempted to think merely on an emotional level. Okay, we're not talking merely about that. That is part of it. Worship does involve deep emotions at times and and great feelings. And none of those are wrong. And worship can touch our deepest places of emotion and feeling. But emotion is not the litmus test for worship, okay? Feelings come and go. Could be what you ate this morning or last night. Emotions are subject to all sorts of crazy unseen forces. Who knows why we feel the way we do at any particular moment. Emotions and feeling are important, but they are not the litmus test for true worship in the church. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our feelings and our emotions are subject to all sorts of external forces, but we must fix ourselves on the fact that our Savior never changes and is worthy of our praise today as he was yesterday, as he will be in glory. So when Paul says that the heart must be engaged, he's speaking to the heart in the way that scripture speaks of the heart as the center of the person. Okay, we know about this. When we say my heart is broken, it's not that your aorta fell off. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about some deep place within us is hurting. That's what Paul's talking about. Some of the deepest part of who we are, the center of our being, our whole self. And here's what's important now. This always includes, in the Bible, one's intellect, one's ability to reason, and one's ability to choose. When he says make melody with your heart to the Lord, he's saying make melody with your intellect, your reason, and your ability to choose. That's why Jesus said you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's getting down to that thing. So, Paul's not telling us here merely to feel something, though that is fine. He is telling us to choose something. He's not telling us to feel something. He is telling us to choose something, to choose to partner with the work of the Holy Spirit who is always working to exalt Jesus Christ in our hearts and minds. Worship is not about feeling something. Worship is about choosing something. That's why the author of Hebrews calls it a sacrifice of praise. Through Christ's sin, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. A sacrifice is always a choice. You have something, you're going to give it. I am telling you that when you come to church, you are confronted with a choice to give praise to God or to withhold it. And that choice is mutually exclusive from how you feel that day. I understand feelings and difficulties, but Christ is glorious and ruling and reigning no matter how we feel. And when we choose to give him the glory due to his name, it transcends our fleeting feelings and our mushy emotions. And it tunes us and recalibrates us to the work of the Holy Spirit of making Christ center. 
Scripture is calling you and confronting you with a choice when you come to church. True worship, then, means that we partner and agree with the Holy Spirit who's at work to convince us of the worth of Christ and the worth of actively, purposefully, and passionately exalting Him. True worship involves focusing on and responding to God with your whole being. And as we said earlier in the sermon, that can be tremendously difficult. Even some of you right now are not focused on what I'm saying. (laughs) But true worship is focusing on Christ and what God has done for you in Christ. Clinton Arnold said, Worship that results from being spirit-filled will involve the worshiper's minds. They will be fully engaged and they will sing with conviction. And that can just be such a battle because of fleshly reasons and the work of the enemy. Hear this. The quality of worship is not determined by the form or the liturgy or the band or the worship leader. The quality of worship emerges from a heart that is focused on and has chosen to exalt and give thanks to God for what he's done for us in Christ. That is the only place by which quality of worship is shown. The issue is the integrity with which one sings, not the feeling. The issue is the integrity with which one sings, not the feeling. Because God knows that we can be in the worship gathering on a Sunday and we can be singing loud with hands lifted high with tremendous feeling. But we're actually thinking about Monday's business deal. Tuesday's remodel, Wednesday's drama, how hurt we are from them, how unfair that was, or even just what we're going to have for lunch after church. We know this is true. You can be singing loud with hands lifted high and your mind is a million miles away. That worship lacks integrity. The issue of worship is one of integrity that exalts and glorifies Jesus. Jesus said this about Pharisees, whom he called hypocrites. He said, these people praise me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Church, you know that happens with us all the time, right? Our heart, the very core of our being, our mind, our thoughts and emotions are are actually far removed, and we're, we're mouthing the words, but we're not actually exalting Christ. The text is just saying, don't, 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 don't do that. There's no value in that. That's not truly recalibrating. It's not truly coming into tune under the conductor who is the Holy Spirit according to the note of the glory of Jesus Christ so that we might be the symphony of God manifest in the world. Adele Calhoun, a favorite writer of mine, says, Worship happens whenever we intentionally cherish God and value him above all else. And worship reveals what is important to us. And so finally, in verse 19, it says that this worship is given to the Lord. There's a vertical dimension. Spirit-filled true worship is always Christ-oriented, okay? Jesus is a primary audience and object. Spirit-filled worship honors Jesus as Lord, as sovereign king. Its goal is not to entertain the Christian. Its goal is to exalt the king. And so he says in verse 20, 
always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Here's where we finish. Giving thanks for all things. That can be admittedly difficult because as Jesus confessed, in this world, you will have trouble and life is hard. And Paul knew about that. Paul was the one who in Acts chapter 16 was sitting in prison with Silas after having been whipped to within an inch of his life. And he was singing praises to God in the middle of the night in that prison in Philippi. Paul is the one who said in Philippians chapter four, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ. Paul knew what it was to give thanks even though life was hard. And life is hard. And we can find reasons to thank God for what he's done for us even when life is hard. And that's good and that's right. And scripture urges us to do so. But that's not necessarily what Paul is saying here. He's saying simply in light of chapter one and chapter two that you were far off, spiritually dead, Aliens and strangers, enemies of God. And yet he loved you before he ever made the world and he chose you before he spoke anything into existence that you should be holy and blameless in his sight in Christ. That he adopted you into his own family by you putting your faith in Jesus Christ. That he made you his own and put his spirit in you and gave you a great inheritance and has lavished his glorious grace and kindness upon you because of all those things. In all these things, give thanks to the Father. It's only right to lavish gratitude on God who has lavished grace upon us. Again, the author of Hebrews. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Now, if we do these things, the result, the fruit of worship is that our hearts and our minds are filled with the wonder, mystery, and good news of God. And then, listen, we all together, having been tuned and recalibrated, go out into this messy world and into our messy lives and our messy families and our hard places and all the broken places that are part of our lives every day. We now go into these places tuned and calibrated to the love of the Father made manifest in the person of Jesus Christ. And it changes the world. It changes things. Christians, it is imperative that we let ourselves be recalibrated and tuned. During the week, as we interact with the messy world, we're going to start to get off course. Right? We're going to start to get out of tune. And that's why God has provided this wonderful thing called the gathering of the saints where we can adore him and tune ourselves to our true identities and be on course for God's glory. Thank you, Lord, for what your word has taught us today. We ask for the grace to live in a way that's faithful to your word. It's hard for us, Lord. At least it is for me. 
I'm worried and bothered about so many things. And yet we have so much to be thankful for in light of your love. Don't let it be lost on us. Teach us to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling with which we have been called. Teach us this morning to rejoice in our identity as a beloved of God and the glory of God in Jesus Christ, ruling and reigning and coming again. Enliven our hearts, Holy Spirit. We ask you to do these things for the glory of Jesus Christ and the church. Amen.